Welcome to the Expandable Mind podcast, where I speak to creators, entrepreneurs, and experts in their field about concepts and topics that don't only intrigue me, but adds a sense of purpose and value to everyday life. I'm your host, Vain Narka, and in this episode of the podcast, I speak to Jessica Silcock, where we will speak about her journey, self-confidence, goal-setting, imposter syndrome, and how different experiences can bring out the best of you. Here's a little bit of an overview of Jessica. Jessica is a communications and marketing executive at Crimson Education who has a passion for delivering customer-centric strategy within education and innovation sectors. Her areas of expertise include brand strategy, PR including issues, crisis communications, and internal communications, and much more. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us today. really appreciate your time. Looking back at your history, should I say, um, we look back at your childhood. What is it like? What is it like being... This, should I say the smaller version of yourself? Mm, great question. And thank you, first off, Bahin, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, looking back, I don't know, over 30 years ago now, uh, growing up, I had the, I guess, the mindset that you need to explore and you need to have a an open mind to be able to, I guess, broaden your world because I was raised in a semi-rural town just outside of Melbourne, Australia. There wasn't a whole lot happening um, in terms of, you know, entertainment and what was in front of me. It was up to me to really keep an open mind and to, um, I guess, be reverent when it comes to what was surrounding me. So going to school, I uh, was very excited to learn. I was always an avid reader, um, but I did feel quite anxious, almost in a debilitating way. I remember feeling um, a lot of separation anxiety from my folks, from my parents, and feeling like a very small fish in a big pond when it was time to go to school. So um, even though I, I could grasp the content in the class pretty quickly and was quite advanced in my studies, um, trying to f- understand this new system of where I fit in and how to have a voice in quite an intimidating new setting was a really steep learning curve for me. Uh, what gave me confidence, I think, always came down to feeling that I had ability in my studies, uh, feeling like I had plenty of friends. Um, one one challenge for me was not being able to please everyone. And uh, I think I did have that people pleaser, um, you know, personality in some ways that I had to try to outgrow or evolve from. Uh, a turning point came when in year four, I remember quite vividly, my teacher at the time uh, turned to me and said, Jessica, I noticed that you pay you know, a lot of attention to those quieter people in the classroom or you know, the people that may have some special needs and aren't keeping up in the classroom. And she asked me to, um, I remember these words vividly, you know, to be a guardian angel for these two students Mm. and once she entrusted me to really look after the well-being of these two students I took that to heart and I really um, felt a sense of purpose in that moment to create a a sense of community for them Mm. at school and and just to be a you know a guiding light for them and then I was lucky enough to be um, selected as school captain with two other students two other boys yeah. And um, being in that role of school captain and then uh, at the end of my final year of primary school, being awarded most outstanding student and winning a $500 scholarship at the time, um, 
that was a the light turned on and I thought, wow, I, I guess, you know, there is a chance here to um, be noticed and appreciated and to make a positive contribution to my peers. And um, it was the pride in my mum's face and my, my dad when I, you know, I, I heard my name announced um, at the time at graduation. That was a real driver for me to keep keep going and um, try to make them proud and to, I guess, um, understand and discover in myself what I was capable of coming from a very anxious and shy frame of mind to begin with. Yeah, and that's amazing. Would you? So, we're, I think like the earlier days of um, your your childhood. So, when you started school and so forth, would you say that um, going to school was a tedious process? You're like, okay, must I really go to school? Do I have to go to school? Like, I think like it still relates to a lot of teenagers, even children that are in primary primary school. They they, I don't think they it's a tedious process, especially when they haven't found like that passion that they, that they want, they mm-hmm. want to go to school. Oh, I found maths as an interesting subject as a, as a, I think like many people disagree on with me. And unfortunately I'm one of those sele- few people that find maths very entertaining. I can sit for hours doing it, but uh, some find it a very tedious <laughs> process. So how did you actually like, w- when was that change for you when you changed from, oh, school is this really tedious process, getting up in the morning is like, oh, to, okay, was it that time where helping those students was like, okay, yes, I have a purpose now and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you recommend to children or teenagers or even people out there in the workplace in terms of finding their purpose? What, what can they actually like ask themselves? Am I happy? Or what type of sort of question line can they ask themselves to find their purpose? For me, I felt that I put a lot of pressure on myself uh, to begin with. And once um, my dad gave me some really interesting advice, he said, don't aim too high, actually. He said, if you aim low enough, uh, you'll be content with whatever the outcome. And he he only said that to me, I think, because he saw that there was that intrinsic uh, motivation and also pressure that I was placing on myself from a young age to be the best I could possibly be, be a model student and make everyone happy. Don't disappoint anyone. So he gave me permission to just explore and take the pressure off. And that left room for me to fall in love with literature and English. And I I guess we'll talk later about the career path I took um, following that storytelling passion that I have. But for me, my sense of purpose, I feel, was discovering that I could create a sense of belonging for myself and togetherness by being the person that everyone went to for advice and help with English. So um, one of my nicknames in primary school was the dictionary, you know, <laughs> just ask the dictionary over there um, and, and we'll get we'll get help. Mm-hmm. So being able to make a contribution, be helpful, be called on by um, someone of authority who I thought was the expert, the teacher, that gave me a real Um, sense of pride of place I think this day and age what we see in young children um, through middle school high school can be isolation and loneliness and often they may feel that going to school or um, they're nervous because they don't really belong or they might not know their place there or whether they um, are good at anything and lack that confidence but if there is an area where they can feel that they are passionate about and they can talk to it, uh, lend advice, 
or take on that role of being an expert, I think that gives a lot of confidence and a feeling of community and a bond that can last for a long time. Uh, and yeah, that, that I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, especially when it comes like in terms of finding purpose at in a, at a school level, um, where you you're still finding your feet, trying to find you who you are. Um, like if, I don't think anybody in high school, um, if you have found who you are, you're a perfect genius. Uh, but uh, I'm still trying to find my who I am as a person, and we're all trying to grow every single day. We're trying to learn new things, and I, I think like where you brought it up, like your parents have always been a support in your journey, and from the sounds of it, and um, they've always strived you to work hard and so forth. Like w- when it came to like your your school career, like did you work? Did you have like always? Were they the ones the motivating factor behind? okay, you you must get, like, let's get those high grades. I must get those high grades. And then when you're outside school, okay, let's get a job or maybe, um, like, work work even harder. Like, have mm-hmm. maybe um, go to the library and volunteer there. Were, were they part of that journey? Uh, it, came, it comes from a couple of different influences when I reflect on that. I grew up, um, my parents had um, pretty modest financial means. So my dad was a builder and bricklayer and actually came from Italy, migrated to Australia, so didn't have a network or professional support really available to him at all, had to learn another language while in school and overcame all those obstacles to end up building homes and then being a courier driver, so driving a truck. And then in my mum's case, after working as a secretary in the city for some time, um, her focus turned to raising two children, myself and my older sister, and then um, working quite casually in a bakery. So um, they didn't have access really to um, a whole lot of academic resources or, um, you know, they didn't understand, I suppose, you know, what was available to really bolster and boost our academic performance or career pathway so much. I think knowing that and sensing that from a young age, uh, I figured out that I would have to work really hard as a you know migrant family, um, to establish these connections and these pathways really from scratch, so that was one factor in the back of my mind. Uh, another factor was my grandparents, who were Italian, you know, in broken English. They would basically ask me every time I saw them, "Are you working hard? Are, um, are you earning money? Do you have a job?" There weren't any other questions on on the list other than tell me, are you working hard? Do you have a job? Uh, Once they heard that I was school captain, you know, the nickname became captain. And, you know, it was a really um, work ethic focused environment that was created around me. And then looking to my older sister, as the younger sister often does, and that gave me a competitive drive. So I would look to my big sister um, and as an example, benchmark how I needed to perform. So she was a straight A student. Um, She was on a pathway to becoming a lawyer. So I thought to myself, I need to top that naturally. You know, I need to really surprise the family um, and maybe start to shift this label that um, my sister was the academic one and I was the uh, sociable one. (laughs) So I really worked hard um, to prove to myself and the family that, you know, I had what it what it takes to, and also to let them know that 
they did a great job as parents. We were surrounded by love, um, plenty, really encouraged to have curiosity, to have an open mind and to be kind, considerate um, across the community. So with all that, I wanted to show them that um, it was able to create someone with confidence who could contribute back to society and to lead a fulfilling life beyond school. So, um, yeah, I, I got um, a pretty good uh, final ATAR score and was uh, named valedictorian at the end of high school. And with that, I basically had free reign of whichever degree I wanted to study come university. Uh, I didn't want to follow my sister's footsteps completely and, and do law, even though I was considering law. So instead, I enrolled in RMIT's um, very popular uh, professional communication course, which majored, I majored in strategic public relations and advanced journalism, print journalism. And that opened up a whole new world for me yes. at that point. Yeah, and that, and that's great. Valedictorian, and I'm sure a lot of people out there, and a lot of teenagers, really want that title. Um, and, and this coming on that, I, I, I from the research and so forth, you you were involved in community based leadership and initiatives while in high school. Uh, what sort of initiatives were those? Can you give us a few examples if you can remember? Mm, I remember um, always wanting to put my hand up to support um, in the education context. So. One example was um, there was a group of refugees, um, Sudanese refugees, who um, migrated to Australia. This was in the 2000s, and one opportunity was to actually volunteer tutoring in English and mathematics to these students. Um, so that was um, really rewarding, and that was probably the first opportunity I had to volunteer in the education context. I loved that, and that was from an initiative that our social captain, who I'm still very good friends with today, launched while in high school. Um, another opportunity that I then followed at university was um, volunteering, a lot of volunteering actually, to get experience and to develop my skills, but to also get a sense of my place in the world as an adult, where did I fit in? I uh, put my hand up to be a life historian, yeah. it was called for an aged care home, so an extended care facility. My job was to sit down with patients who I would, you know, consider my clients and slowly interview them over a series of visits, some suffering from dementia, um, Alzheimer's, and learn to piece together the fragmented memories that they had of their life. And um, the really fulfilling part for me was listening over these tape recordings, uh, writing up the life story, and then being able to put a hand, a copy of that um, to the family. The family would read that. And um, in one case, there was a, a patient whose um, sons learned a whole, uh, a whole new chapter of their mum's life that they didn't know existed before. She wasn't comfortably, comfortable really sharing until this moment of her life. Um, that was phenomenal. And that was, yeah, a very rewarding experience that also helped to hone my interviewing and writing skills at the same time. The initiative that you took there was amazing. Um, I think if more people could do that, uh, would you recommend to students out there when they when they want, when they trying to find their passion? I'm not saying they found their passion, but when they're trying to find their passion, um, do you recommend that they engage in these sorts of sorts of activities and 
how would they like where, where would they approach like not all schools like i i know for my school for example they they are a leadership-based school mm. uh, we have leadership principles and so forth but for those schools that are not and wherever this is in the world like where where does one actually find them how do they approach people oh can I volunteer here? Because approaching people in today's world, it's not as easy as it thinks. Like this, this podcast, like approaching people is like, I had to learn how to like talk and so forth uh, because it's not easy. It's like talking to people that are higher grade than me. I'm like, oh damn, uh, I don't actually know these people. I, I, I'm yeah. nowhere near their qualifications. So where, where, where can they bolster their confidence and what resources can you advise them? Yeah, absolutely. Fostering confidence, I think it just comes from trial and error and experiences. And you, only you uh, know your experiences and only you uh, see life through a, a very individual lens. So you can have confidence in knowing that you bring a very unique perspective thanks to all your, your upbringing, your background, your education, your, your teachers, exposure to all these different elements of your life you create then and, and bring a very individual and unique perspective to the world around you and what you can contribute to society. So take confidence in that first off. I think um, choosing an area of, to volunteer in can be led by what gives you energy. When I feel a little, um, when I lack momentum or I feel a little discouraged, I often think to myself, well, let's go back to what gives me energy what excites me? Um, where do I feel like I'm doing great work? And what we call it crimson is the flow. When do I get into a flow? And that state of mind and flow um, is basically when you're doing an activity and time stands still. And for you, Vahin, that most likely is working with numbers and mathematics and solving certain problems and uh, in physics and so on. Yeah. You can do it for hours and time stops. You can lose track you lift your head up and all of a sudden it's approaching midnight and maybe you forgot to drink water in the last few hours or forgot to eat because you've been so absorbed in what you were doing and you're creating something. And that that's a beautiful process to go through. So channeling that into volunteering is great. If there's an organization that exists that welcomes like-minded people who are passionate about STEM or art or writing or literature, think about approaching that that program. Uh, another one would be looking at other students' extracurricular activities and putting your hand up to join that the team. For example, at Crimson, we have what we call is the ECL platform, mm. extracurricular platform. Uh, it's, well, it wouldn't be as intimidating as an yes. institutional, you know, corporate establishment, perhaps. So, if there's other high school students running competitions either participate and, and put your hand, hat in the ring mm. and maybe enter the competition if it's run by other high schoolers or you could volunteer helping run it. So perhaps this podcast channel, over time, someone can put their hand up and help you produce this or uh, find talent, source talent or brief talent to be on this podcast, for example, or support the promotion of the podcast, be it across social media, learning more about that or storytelling of the guests that are on this podcast. There are so many avenues you can go down. And um, one final piece of advice I'd love to give because I myself am the director of this program is the Crimson Youth Fund. So uh, through the Crimson Youth Fund, if a student listening here, a parent, if you've come across an idea um, that maybe doesn't exist, 
and you think, I'd love to volunteer if for this kind of thing, or I'd love to attract volunteers behind this kind of organisation or cause, apply to the Crimson Youth Fund. So just Google Crimson yeah. Youth Fund. Uh, when you do apply, myself and a panel will review your submission and we'll agree to either monetarily support you or through advice and mentorship in other ways, give you an idea of how you can establish a really great community impact project, which is really a form of volunteering. Or you can get involved in other existing Crimson Youth Fund-backed initiatives. So it's another channel that's available globally for anyone between 13 and um, 18 years old, or 21 years old, I should say, 13 to 21. Yeah, and, and I can personally say that the Crimson Youth Fund has helped me. Um, I I start, I approached um, the Crimson Youth Fund. I was like, okay, what is this all about? I actually want to start a podcast, but how? Like the podcasts are not like cheap to start either. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, you can start, you can, you can have like a few free versions and so forth. But then I was like, I want to take this actually like a proper uh proper job if you could say that a full-time thing and yeah the, i think like eventually we, we might grow i might grow this the podcast team uh, i'm there's only one person for now which is me but the, i'll maybe look back to this podcast and probably think oh damn thanks crimson youth fund and, and thanks jessica <laughs> for the support yeah maybe maybe volunteers or m- maybe in the next few months maybe in the next few years we could have like actually a paid team and so forth um, and yeah, it's wouldn't. I'll also add to that, Vahid, if I can, um, you've just reminded me that the the approach that you took, which is really impressive, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, you don't feel that you're at the same grade, perhaps, or you might not have the same life experiences as the um, quote, you know, experts that you have on the show. But um, what I've learned over time is it's it's not about having the right answers. It's about asking intelligent questions. So don't don't consume yourself too much in having to know what the answer is or the right answer because there is always a gray area and way to interpret that justify that Mm -hmm. um i think if you if you really understand the right questions to ask open questions that dig a little deeper and that will allow you to really um, evolve a lot quicker and to learn a lot quicker so the right questions and also a diversity of people that you're consulting and asking gives you a, a nice broad perspective yeah and i think uh, well i think i'm achieving that hopefully i've had a and dr tom crawford in previous episodes if you go check that out um and as well mm-hmm. as tyler shaw's he that was my first podcast episode it was like um yes for me personally and if i reflect back to the time yes i was very nervous um in comparison to me right now I, when when I look at your life experiences and from previous chats that we had and so forth, you I remember that you told me about the 2008 and how you just finished getting your first degree. Oh yes, jobs weren't weren't just like openly handed out. Companies when like some were all in financial struggle. What did you do in that time? In my last year at uh, uni, actually, pretty much every year of university, I volunteered and did internships uh, for free. And that was, a, for me, I saw that as a chance to work on my character building, my confidence, and to gain skills so I become a valuable employee in the future. So I didn't focus too much on the skills-based internships paying me. Um, I also had to work to earn a salary, and I wanted to start saving up because um, I did come from a family that was, you know, frugal background and always taught me to save up. Uh, so... 
um, I was balancing yeah, working in retail, also doing internships and then study around that. Uh, the GFC, before the GFC hit, uh, I was in my final year of university, 2008, and I was offered to actually work uh, within a PR agency that I had a lot of fun working with. And I, at the time, declined because I, I was so focused on finishing my degree and not pausing on the degree. I'd have to pause on my studies. I was so focused on ticking that goal and, and graduating and diving straight into the workforce full time. So um, I passed on that offer and then basically I uh, graduated and it was time to start looking for open roles and it was very, very dry. Um, the, the first departments to basically go in terms of investing in resources were often your marketing, your public relations, advertising, com communications departments. So it was very challenging. Um, I wanted to keep feeling productive. I often find I'm most anxious or hard on myself when I don't have a lot of work to do. And that's something I need to work on and to find fulfillment and balance in other areas. But for me, my sense of purpose and confidence often came from contributing and working, working hard and feeling like I was doing a good job. So uh, I went back to thinking about volunteering. Um, I started to mm -hmm. finally take up some contract work. So it was bit by bit. Once I was able to get my foot in the door with a three-month contract, a government role where I was a communications advisor, that was a great experience. I actually was able to um, support communication around employment for people with disabilities. So I ran an event around this uh, raising awareness around employment for people with disabilities, this agency, um, Wise Employment, and we were able to at the time secure uh, a very impressive government minister as a, as a spokesperson. And I, I was the project owner of that. So yeah. that taught me a lot around media relations and so on, public speaking, yeah. event management, and for a really good cause. Um, I then, from that, had a shoe into full-time um, ongoing indefinite employment. And that was for a celebrity chef in Melbourne, um, Guy Grossi, that was working as his um, PR assistant and personal assistant and that um, felt like that took me around the world definitely around Australia in many ways in, in terms of the advising and the media and the events and the celebrity that came with that and the publicity around that so that was a, a phenomenal training ground I was I think 21 at the time learned so much um, and graduated from that role in many ways um, after about two years decided to take a break and reevaluate um, what I learned, what I was enjoying about working full-time. Um, at that time, I was working pretty much 12-hour days and at times it was beyond five days a week. So it would be 8 till 8, um, but that meant I'd leave home before 7 a.m. Um, because I lived in this semi-rural suburb. That was a little while to get into the city. So I did have to decompress and think about am I on the right path? Am I Am I still going to um, pursue ultimately public relations, communication, media? So I was able to, um, once I felt that there was more stability and security in the world's economy picking back up, you know, 2010, 2011, um, I then went on my first overseas trip with my sister um, across Europe 
for a couple of months. And that was 2011. And from there, um, I came back after two months of being able to travel and doing my first overseas yeah. trip. And I applied for a role at Kumon, which is a global tutoring company in English and maths. And from the role of media coordinator, um, where I was given the very exciting task of going around Australia and New Zealand and interviewing, I think my my KPIs, my goals were um, interview uh, 40 people within your first month, basically. Um, come back to me when you've interviewed 100 people. Um, that taught me a lot about customer empathy around what a brand truly is when you speak to the students and families doing the program, learning from Kumon, the Kumon method. Um, I Yeah, I really enjoyed that role and uh, was then promoted to lead the whole um, marketing public relations aspect of Kumon ANZ from Sydney. Um, that was a big change for me leaving home and moving to a new city. I was 24 at the time, turning 25, and um, was that was a, a fantastic, I think, almost two years in that role um, before I then decided to change again, challenge myself in an, another environment. So after um, jumping from um, what, would, what was, I guess, described as a corporate environment and multinational, I was able to often travel across Asia in that role so that we would have strategic meetings. I was um, fortunate to work, you know, within Jakarta, within Manila, within Singapore, um, Kuala Lumpur, Tokyo. It took me everywhere uh, working with other teams on these off-sites. I then came back and and um, thought, well, I've never worked within government before. Let's try that. So just before joining Crimson Education, I worked at the Australian Synchrotron for those physics uh, fans, students, and at uh, the Particle Accelerator. And um, I was there for only six months. It wasn't for me, I found, working within this um, kind of environment and um, the way the way decision-making um, happened, it seemed quite slow to me just compared to what I was used to. Um, so I, I then thought it was a natural progression to work within a startup at the time. Crimson is now very much established and no longer what we would call a startup, but it was, yeah, super entrepreneurial environment. And um, that was such a change from government, from corporate to, to go into Crimson as a, quite an early employee. And I'm very proud to still be there now. Um, next week, it'll be, I think, six years, six years um, since then. Amazing. Uh, amazing. And, and I think like from from all your experiences all your work experiences and so forth from the celebrity chef to working at Kumon to the synchrotron to uh, well crimson I think like at the moment it looks like you crimson is like really you're really enjoying it there and so forth and well who wouldn't crimson is like really great <laughs> from everybody's opinions and so forth but I think you understand the concept of self-respect um that yes um, for example, the celebrity, celebrity chef, uh, you were, you were this, you just like, okay, I need to take a step back. Let me reflect. Mm -hmm. I'm working these 12 hour crazy days and number one, not getting enough, uh, probably not enough sleep. I'm not getting enough personal time. I, I'm not being able to communicate with my family enough. And, and then when you went to Kumon, I think like, I think the traveling got, got to you quite a bit from hearing uh, hearing your experience like you were traveling quite a lot like 
managing family and traveling it's it's not an easy thing because you can't take you, you can't take your family on every trip that you go like okay we like what happens then um and then the synchrotron like you knew okay immediately six months in okay mm-hmm. that is not mm-hmm. for me i'm done and that just speaks about like your self-respect and what is your understanding of self-respect mm. that's a great question for me it's understanding at the end of the day uh back to my energy levels and my drive and if I wake up and it naturally I've always been um what people have described as happy-go-lucky so um my default is to take a pretty positive view of the world and of people and um it, it yeah it, it takes a lot I guess to shift my mindset from that um that natural state of being quite motivated and positive but um, I can recognize in myself the pattern when I'm moving away from that. Um, yeah, basically feeling foggy, um, not being able to make decisions confidently, maybe second, starting to second guess myself or um, feeling a little more doubtful, overthinking things, spiraling into that kind of re- re-evaluating how I performed. Um, when I'm in that state of thinking, I know that it's time to step back and give myself space to just find that confident voice again. And um, that's when I made the assessment that, um, you know, I, I have been working really hard. Um, I felt that I'd done a, a really good job and I wouldn't disappoint anyone. Um, if, it, if, if I was going to move on, I'd, I'd, leave, um, I'd leave the team, my boss, the company in a better state than um, how I maybe came. Um, so I was pleased with that. If I'd felt that I'd given it my all, um, if I'd made contributions that would improve the way things were being done, uh, and if I'd basically got into my limit of energy <laughs> levels, then I was satisfied to say, okay, that chapter is done now. Um, I want to keep learning and exploring. And I feel that when you have um, – an area of talent, what some people might say a gift, if you feel that you've got a gift in some area, it is um, it is your duty in some ways to share it and to see where else you can contribute it or where can you make an even bigger impact. So I was always looking at that. Where can I make a further impact? For me, it wasn't about feeling that I deserved a different title or a different salary or, you know, um, for me it was more about feeling like where where can I keep growing and contributing next and where am I going to get my next life lesson from um just building wisdom for me is like the most invaluable currency there is so that's what I've always um that's what I've always used as my guiding principles really yeah yeah and and that's amazing uh I think like in today's world everybody's so busy looking at it uh looking at the status because oh and if the, i think this is an influence mm-hmm. on family and so forth oh right. this person yeah he's so busy um so glamorized <laughs> exactly they got this whole life and you're looking at it through like maybe a lens and you, life is like so um multi-dimensional and you're just seeing one right. one dimension of their life exactly. you, you nobody actually understands what a life is 
everybody else's life and that's the truth so i can't actually be the one like just looking at you yeah like it's easy to judge and say oh this person got this and i think that this is this is where where the concept of self-respect is actually like lowered because everybody's looking through this lens that Mm-hmm. you as a person oh they got this they got a mercedes-benz or they got a, a big fancy house or they got this mm-hmm. year and i don't and they're looking at that and they want to work more longer hours and less sleep and in the at the end of the day like there's this phrase that it, your wealth uh, your wealth is not your health but your health is your wealth and 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 that phrase actually like comes on to in relationship with uh with self-respect and I don't mm-hmm. know if you agree with me at that whole point but 100% yeah I, I recently read a book that I would um highly recommend to those listening um and it's on the topic of wealth but it comes from a psychological kind of perspective it's called the psychology of money timeless lessons on wealth greed and happiness by Morgan Housel it's a phenomenal book and he talks about there's a chapter on the difference between rich and wealth, <laughs> rich people who are rich and people who are wealthy. And um, he was, I'm paraphrasing here, might not have it correct, but um, he talks about you see rich, like you said, in the, in the Mercedes and in this size house and these brands that you choose to see, but you don't see wealth. Wealth is what accrues over time <laughs> behind the scenes and it's not often spent on these status um you know symbols so much so you can't really judge um people on the surface around that and um the book also talks about when is it enough so being being happy with enough um and just trying to think why are you why are you seeking um to show these things or why are you seeking a certain amount of of fortune um where does that come from so just I think always having a conversation with yourself on who is it for and will it make you feel any more fulfilled and secure um, and excited about life? I think there's some good questions to ask yourself. Yeah, I've also read The Psychology of Money. Um, amazing great. book. Great. I thought I saw you nodding. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great book. I'd recommend the audience read it. Uh, yeah, if maybe we get get uh, the author on the podcast, maybe, um, and we can speak about that. But I think the the ultimate when you know that you've understood your self respect and self worth uh, as well is when you know when it's enough is enough. Uh, and I think Jessica, you've mm-hmm. you've like mastered that. Uh, you've mastered it from like your early work experience of like, okay, I've had enough of this um, because number one, mm-hmm. it's uh, I'm not you. You understood that I'm not chasing it for uh, for the money, uh, but and status mm-hmm. and people chase jobs for that. Um, I'm not going to say mm-hmm. that um, that uh, if if everybody can be perfect, uh, we all have some sort of mm-hmm. uh, psychological. Okay, we have our psychological personalities. We're driven and so forth. But there's also a limit you have to understand. Mm-hmm. When do you put the brakes on and that just defines self, self right respect. Right. One thing that's, um, that's right. Um, at times, uh, you know, when I took on a lot of responsibility, so at Crimson, before my current role of, you know, community director, global community director, I was the head of marketing, public relations and communications globally. So the SVP at Crimson, 
and on the executive team. And for me, what was hard was at times knowing when um, I could say no or to draw some lines when I felt responsible for my team. Actually, sometimes it's not even about yourself, but you think this is I'm being of service to others and my way of being of service to others and lifting others up is giving as much from my bucket as I can. And what I was taught over time is, and this is from becoming a mother, which has been the biggest blessing for me, um, becoming a mum, having having a daughter, a little girl, um, what that taught me was in order to be a great mum, you actually need to fill your own bucket up first to be able to then give from that bucket to others. So um, having that self-respect and refilling your cup and energizing yourself, it's not selfish. Saying no is not selfish. It actually allows you to say yes to the things that really matter and that make an impact and to bring your best self to those projects or to those people, in in my case, my daughter. Um, So having her has made me feel a lot better about saying no to other things because I know in every time I say no, it's a yes to my family. So, um, and, and that's become a big part of my purpose and my focus and priority in life. So, you know, your baby might be a, pro, a project um, and might be founding a company. Uh, and in your case, um, Vahin, for the expandable mind, uh, when you say no to other things, you know, it comes back to reflect on what does this allow me to do in growing the expandable mind? So it's great to have those um those measures that matter to you, if that project, that you know, baby, if you will, keeps them um, giving you energy and a sense of purpose and, and joy and fulfillment. Yeah, and actually saying no, I'm actually one of those people that are like, okay, I'll do it. Um, whether right, and it's something that I'm trying to trying to also like learn slowly. I do say no to a few things. Like if somebody tells me, okay, let's just give an example. My sister tells me go fetch this from. I'm like no. Uh, previously, I would have like, okay, <laughs> yes, I would. I'll, I'll bring it down, mm-hmm. and and that's <laughs> right. totally me. Like you, uh, you have your daughter, for example. That you children learn through your actions and not your words. Uh, that's that's what right. um, that's what psychology uh, psychology is. Uh, it states right. out there that uh, children are influenced. If you say no, if they understand what when to say no to certain things, like I'm sure that sometimes they'll they'll just like no I don't want to do this and it's it's yeah. enough to say okay there's certain things that yes you have to do but especially mm-hmm. and you can enforce as a parent but for for some things like okay you just like just okay we understand that you don't want to do it um, and I think that parents out there need to understand that children also have some sort of self-respect it's not only in the work working world that okay right. understanding when to say no and so forth but also exactly like, just gentle house chores like okay I don't want to do this no I don't want to do this <laughs> maybe it's a bad example maybe I'm saying something wrong but maybe I'm saying it uh, <laughs> well, to the wrong people but one tip I, I can give you on that is um I think absolutely be self-awareness is such a powerful tool the more self-aware you are, um, I think the more confident you can go into a conversation. And I use the word conversation because with my daughter who's just turned two, what I'm what I'm figuring out is um, rather than just teaching her to say no, um, which is an important life lesson, I think it's the negotiation that goes into the conversation. That's a real skill. 
So when it comes to saying no to chores, um, over time, you can use that as an exercise to practice your negotiation skills because in business, in life, it all you can you can negotiate on pretty much anything. And that's something I didn't learn. Uh, I think growing up, I was more observing what I saw among my family, which was respect authority, say yes, do what you're told, um, and follow the experts. And where I see students thriving in high school and later in life is them having skills to negotiate back themselves and do it respectfully and do it sensibly and, you know, um, but do it with an open mind and as an activity, do I, I suppose, be your biggest advocate? Yes. And I think a big part of leadership is understanding negotiation skills. Uh, so, yeah. Absolutely. And I think I want to speak a little bit more before we head into Crimson, my, I think the, the my favorite part and the part I'm waiting to hear more about. I just want to hear your, you traveled quite a bit from what, right. from what your experiences and what I've heard so far. But your Kumon, uh, when you were working at Kumon, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and so forth, um, Okay, I'm I'm proud to say that I'm a come on English completer, so yay, come on point well of my side. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. But, but the common program does yes, it does help uh, a lot, like in terms of English, yes, your vocabulary mm. is gonna be brilliant, especially after reading, I think like level I or something like that, Shakespeare and you mm. understand so things like that. Macbeth. But <laughs> Yes, Macbeth. Um, I think that's. Where, I think I also came across Julius Caesar, my favorite out of all, yes. all of the all, all right. of the Shakespeare's works. Julius Caesar. Um, to all those Romeo and Juliets, those star-crossed lovers out there, not my favorite, uh, but don't mind me because of that. But that's my opinion. You, everybody's entitled to opinion. What is it? How did you actually balance between? your family uh, managing time with your family and so mm-hmm. forth like your mom and dad how did you balance between this all this traveling and i think i've like raised it previously like you said i think that got to a point how did you mm-hmm. say okay how did you balance it with, at the initial start like okay, it must have been exciting at the start uh, mm-hmm. it, uh, traveling and so forth being given this opportunity um, especially yeah. now that you look back and you reflect that, okay, COVID's actually taken away travel for a bit. Uh, <laughs> right, right. So. I do miss it. I absolutely miss it. I found that when I was in the sky flying, sometimes on an eight-hour flight, other times it was an 18-hour trip because I'd be going from Melbourne to San Francisco, <laughs> um, which I don't miss so much, that part. But um, I found that I'd always have a bird's eye it granted me literally you know a bird's eye view of work I was removed somewhat I knew I had just me time and I had my laptop and my books and my notepad and I could really strategically think about where I wanted the team to get to where I saw opportunities that were untapped where I wanted to develop myself how I would approach this next business meeting or this conversation so I missed that space that it gave me the headspace to really pause because I knew I was free from distractions and in a way I was given permission to not be accessible um which is the challenge when you're in a global organization you feel like you can always be reached but on the flip side the wonderful thing is that you can reach out to anyone and just today for example I've had conversations with um someone in the midwest of America uh people in New Zealand someone in Korea 
and someone in Colorado before talking to you in South Africa. So it's it's a great day so far from my my cozy um, house in Melbourne, Australia. Um, but back to how to balance um, family and other personal commitments while you are working in other countries and cities and time zones. For me, the answer was bringing them into my world. So rather than saying you won't hear from me for a few days. I've just got this work thing. I'll speak to you when I get back. Uh, I wanted to fill them in on how I was going and what I was learning, what I was experiencing. So for me, it was letting them know, you know, um, when my plane's about to take off, give them a call, um, let them know how I'm feeling. When they're, um, let them know I've landed. This is what I've got as my schedule the next day. So just keeping them informed, almost like a support team. I think people often say that, you know, at work, you've got your team and you've got your mentor or your manager and that's your support. Actually, you really, for resilience sake, you need to broaden out your your support network to also include um, other relationships outside of the work environment and the office. That gives you um, strength and it reminds you of who you are, um, what your principles are, and it helps you to have confidential conversations with people that you might not um, be able to share information with at work so just having them as my support team um, while I'm on these work trips sharing in with them the funny moments I know back in, in our last call we spoke about cultural differences and um, you know <laughs> different words used to describe different food um, so laughing about those moments with family and friends is always a great thing and then coming back and just having a few fun stories to share I think that makes them see, helps them to see that you're um, not sacrificing too much, that you're getting a lot out of it and you're bringing um, some insights back to the table as well to have a good conversation about. Uh, another piece of advice I would give to um, anyone listening to this who is a student or um, a young person is to um, try talking about your feelings as well. Um, I know it can often feel uncomfortable. It's so personal. Sometimes it can feel taboo in some families, but the more you can talk about your feelings, um, I'm feeling like I would, you know, say, I, I don't, I didn't realize I was a nervous flyer, but I'm feeling a little anxious packing for this trip, or, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to this, but this person kind of intimidates me. So um, let's see how this goes, and if you've got any advice on this, uh, knowing that I could talk about how I was feeling, not just having to put on a brave face or to talk um, just about the business of work and all those other factors that impact the way you um, get energy and how you get up in the next you know the next morning I think that's important to create space for you to talk about those things too how you're feeling along the way that means they can also spot some red flags I think so if you're if they're in the habit of saying well how are you feeling today and if your response comes back and there's a, there's a clue that something's a little different. They might be able to point that out to you before you might even realize. They might say, you seem a little tired. Are you sure you're okay? Or you don't seem to be eating like your usual routine. Is there something on your mind? I think it helps for your parents to um, be able to have these conversations and spot these things or your friends and family if they're clued into the full picture of what working and traveling and being away from home looks like no that's, that's really great um 
I remember when I, I think grade five or some, somewhere like that, I, I went to New York by myself with like schoolmates and so forth. Um, mm. And it was a brilliant experience. Like taught me a lot, especially going by myself. Um, it was, I didn't have it, no family with me, probably like friends that probably I could like count on. Um, I still keep in touch with like one or two of them. Um, but mm. it, I, I was broadened by that. Uh, my mind was broadened. The experiences uh, brought a lot to me. Um, and I, I think like hearing your experience that you've di- diversified your network uh, totally. Mm-hmm. You've met so many people around the world that you can go to a country and probably like, okay, hi, uh, you meet them somewhere. <laughs> like, uh, it's it's a not, great feeling. Not rare, but um, uh, you could say that diversifying your network is like i think in the world today especially as we are the gig economy or the sharing economy as i read in a book um Mm -hmm. it's so important but how how does one actually network i i only joined Mm -hmm. linkedin recently and i was like oh linkedin's actually better than uh, well i i just don't have the gist of instagram um so to be very honest, I'm a very bad Instagram user. I don't know how to use it fully. Um, that's my total yes. honesty. But LinkedIn has, I, I communicate with like people from different podcasts and that's amazing. I've joined groups on there. It's like just so, uh, and, and I'd recommend to the audience, like join LinkedIn, like join groups, speak to people on there. Like people have such different experiences mm. And it would be so good yes. to just hear those experiences and then you can apply it. I'm, I'm just talking to you, for example. I've learned so much about saying no, uh, self-respect mm-hmm. and so forth. And it's just like, uh, I do wish I can, I do wish that maybe more people can understand like traveling and so forth. But Right. Uh, yes. I, let's dive into that. <laughs> we can dive into some of that. Um, yeah. One more tip on the self-respect is, uh, is communicating as openly as you can. I'll just finish with that part. Um, when it comes to saying no, I always like to try to offer some other value at the table. Like um, while I'm saying no to this today, um, perhaps in two weeks from now, or what I can offer you is this great person or my advice for what you can do next so I'm not that roadblock is this. So I always try to um, deliver my no with a helpful suggestion or some value add where they can still take next steps and not be roadblocked. Um, But on to the... The, um, the global community aspect and networking, how to network. So I get asked this question a lot and networking I think is wrongfully given a very formal label. Uh, it's almost as if it's another task list, uh, task on the, on the list of what to do um, while at university, while at work and now while in high school is the expectation which is adding some pressure to people. So how I see mentorship and networking within the similar camp is relationships, friendships. If you see it as a friendship or a relationship that you're developing, I think naturally the rapport, the collaboration, the sharing of ideas follows. So how I approach it is um, firstly reaching out to someone who I admire or um, that has been in my in my kind of um, sphere of influence in the past and um, thanking them, starting off with a thank you, letting them know how they impacted me or what I learned from them. So just as you said to me earlier, Vahin, you know, thanks a lot. I'm learning about no and self-respect. Um, 
that often opens up the conversation and people feel really pleased and they want to share more. Um, so I often, I often um, either through a WhatsApp message, as we're becoming quite informal, I think, these days with, with how we communicate across the business <laughs> landscape. So it can be a LinkedIn message, it can be an email, but it actually can also be a WhatsApp message or WeChat or a text or a phone call. Um, but I'll always start with, hey, so-and-so, um, I thought of you the other day because this came up and I just wanted to thank you. You might not have realized this, but I learned a lot from this time where we XYZ worked on this project or when I heard you deliver this talk or where I read your book, whatever it is, thanking them and telling them what you learned from them and then perhaps suggesting it would be great to be able to continue this conversation or um, I'd love to hear what you're up to or I hope you're well. So going with a mindset to give rather than to take, I think where people get networking wrong is we think, okay, I need to find someone who's going to, who I can take advice from, who I can um, take coaching from and who I can excel from. I want to learn from them. But if you see it as reciprocal, you end up learning from each other. It becomes quite a fulfilling relationship. It's not just one-sided. So um, knowing, you know, knowing that um, you enjoyed the the self-respect and the no um, concept for him and talking about, well, the theory of um, enough is enough and um, wealth and so on, knowing that we've read the same book, that's an, that's an example of a conversation that can happen in maybe three months from now. Um, if you wanted to further network, I, I imagine the conversation could be something like, Hi Jess, just read another one of Morgan Housel's books. Have you read it? Thought you might be interested in it. Or um, I reread this chapter. It reminded me of the conversation we had. What do you think about this? I'd love your advice on this. So just giving something back to begin with is great. And, and then having a conversation. I don't think people need formal labels so much as mentor. I don't think networking events are actually that effective official networking events I think the networking happens every time you make contact with someone they they enter your network and you can keep those relationships going yeah and I like that I like that point of view that anybody can be part of your network it can be you may not think of them everybody thinks that okay this person is important uh, important in the world like I can be interviewing a YouTuber and we and I did um Dr. Tom Crawford right. uh and yes uh I net I could say that yes he's added to my network and I probably like like to keep in right. touch with him I'd like to keep in touch with you Jess and so it, it, I think the I think the mindset that should be instilled or influenced amongst people of today is is that if the person is not if if the person is a, just a general person or maybe just like okay he's a student or he's just at university or in high school you can be a, he can be added to your network you don't have to say he can be a friend and a friend can be considered part of your network it's it's absolutely yeah. absolutely and, and aunties uncles cousins siblings exactly. they they make up your network <laughs> exactly and and like you said i think the idea of a network it's been the the meaning has changed. Uh, if people think the meaning is yeah. different. A friend is not a part of your network, but it, it it actually is. You talk to them all the time. You're learning from and them. And you know what? Those friends, absolutely, those friends will end up going on to perhaps study something great at university. They might have a business venture that really excites you. So 
those people that are beside you in the classroom now, they may become, you know, the next Steve Jobs or <laughs> the next um, Elon Musk. You never know. You never know. And you, that could be you. Um, and these people would benefit from being your friend too. So I really do believe in um, limitless potential in each in each of us. So um, and I also believe in just karma, you know, treat others with kindness and what goes around does come back around. So I think that's really important to send out positive energy and it will reward you um, down the track. I, I love that thinking. Yeah, And yes, I'm a big fan of karma. It is, um, I do believe in it. Uh, what goes around mm. comes around. So I can be ugly to people <laughs> and it will come back to me. Um, yes. I, I, I tend to think even on, on the positive, like where, even if I'm busy with something, like an example with podcasts, there's always that fear. Okay, what if this fails? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yes. don't think in that perspective. Don't think in that perspective. And karma is uh, a factor of that. Like this, your thinking patterns. If you think you are going to do bad in something, or you think you're going to fail in something. Right. You it's often do because you've already. Yes. Uh, it's, it's the, it, I think it's like the, the, I don't know if you've read the books, The Secret and so forth, or the by Rhonda Burns and so forth, or the, uh, it's a recommended read to all the listeners out there. It's, it's, it's an amazing book and yeah, it's amazing books. There's more than one book at mm. right now. There's even, a, I think a documentary or a, a film based on, on the book on Netflix. So definitely check that out. And Thanks now it's my most <laughs> It's my pleasure. I think, like, uh, speaking about books, we can go on the whole day. We can probably I compare know, what right? we've read. I know, I know. Look at the, yeah, that's just a glimpse of the bookshelf. There's a lot more that goes across, but maybe for another session. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and on my favorite part, we're going to start talking about Crimson. Uh, Great. when you said you started there when it was a startup, how was it? Like, was it, did you, right. did, what is the, what is it like? What is the vibe? I've always wanted to know what, what yes. working in a oh startup was. It was a high energy, high energy environment. It, uh, yeah. It felt like you were really within the engine room and building something, um, really powerful. I was very lucky to work very close to the co-founders, Chandra Kushor and Jamie Beaton from day one. Um, at the time, they were 18 years old. So that was really interesting. For the first time, I was actually being led by people quite significantly younger than me and working as an advisor and a consultant in many ways, um, but also learning from them as well. They're, you know, what, what I call good hustle, their resilience, um, the competitive spirit, just that positive mindset. Um, they were very, they were fearless. And we um, we set a lot of records when we were working in those early days. Um, I was actually yes. tasked, one, a funny story I can share is, I think we had about, uh, I don't know, maybe five or six different at the time Skype calls before Zoom became popular in our pandemic world especially. Yeah. But um I think there was about five or six conversations that we had over Skype over a series of months. Um, it, it took about a year or so actually for me to say yes to join Crimson. At the time, I was actually, I interviewed Jamie Beaton um, from his college dorm room at Harvard through Skype. I was interviewing him. Um, Jamie did very well with the Kumon program himself. 
and I was asked when I when I was at Kumon, I was asking Jamie about his experiences working through the program. He did a lot of other tutoring too, but Kumon was one where he completed, and I wanted to showcase where Kumon could get you, i.e., to Harvard. In Jamie's case, uh, while we were talking, the interview quickly turned to an interview of myself. Jamie was asking a lot of questions around my role and PR and marketing, and over time, I was then offered a role to work for. Um, the company he co-founded and yeah. I, I wasn't sure whether to take it seriously um, Jamie was 18 this company was um, maybe a couple of years old at the time uh, and yeah. after about a year in 2016 um, I reached out um, after I, I realized that the government environment wasn't for me we started our conversation again and um, mm. I was then uh, after my my um, kind of semi-formal interview um, with Chandra, I was asked, hey, do you have a passport? <laughs> this is how the conversation was finished wrapping up. I said, yeah, I do. How would you feel about getting on a flight tomorrow morning at like 5 a.m. Um, so we can actually <laughs> meet you and see how you enjoy this environment? And I think that was a great test yeah. because I had to be adaptable, flexible, open-minded, willing to go, go, go with it. Um, so I got my passport out, jumped on a flight the next morning. I think it was basically at the airport at 5 a.m. on a 7 a.m. flight. And I found myself basically working as on the on the day um, without, without signing an employment contract or anything. I was basically giving advice, working uh, in some ways as a PR representative. We were working with media that day. And I started representing Crimson. Um, before even saying officially yes to the job offer. And um, because I've never cared so much about uh, title and salary, I always believe if you do a good job, those things come. I was just yes. doing doing a job that I thought I, I could do well. And then later we discussed and negotiated, well, what does the title look like? Uh, what's the salary yeah. actually going to be here? Um, but that was yes. a good couple of weeks of um, – the initial experiences at Crimson and then I was able to um, fly to Sydney. So that was Auckland, New Zealand, and then spent some time in Sydney. Then I came back to Melbourne and I was trusted to launch our operations in Melbourne. I had to find a physical office. I had to find a team and I had to <laughs> set, up, set up our operations across Victoria and basically represent Crimson, um, all of brand PR marketing across ANZ. And in my first year, we actually launched into another eight to 10 countries. So within a year, we were in um, about 10 markets, 12 markets at the time. So we went into it, we became a global company very quickly. And um, I think when I came on board, there was about maybe 10 to 20 employees uh, and it just grew exponentially now. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's beyond comprehensible um, how far mm. it's grown. So I had to, um, I had to wear many different hats. Uh, I had to um, basically represent people and culture and and HR in many ways, and establish the office and the, the practice there, and um, oversee the employment of a great team, and then still um, the brand and the PR and establishing certain programs with um, with Jamie and Chandra, which um, like the Crimson Youth Fund and certain scholarships. I'm really proud of that are still running. Um, that was really rewarding. And then 
one of my greatest uh, memories was traveling across our Asia offices, advising on PR and marketing. So that was Shanghai, um, Bangkok, and also Singapore. And I was also asked um, just before getting married, actually, to go and launch Crimson USA. So I was able to spend time in San Francisco uh, with some great colleagues of mine. And we launched our Crimson US operations. While in the US, I was able to secure some great coverage in Forbes magazine and just do some networking across the US community. Um, Funny story is though, because my accent is an Australian one and pretty hard to understand sometimes, I found myself you know, just pretending to have an American accent on certain business calls while over in the US because how else could people understand me? So some some funny lessons in adapting. Um, but yeah, it, it was a real thrill. Um, what keeps me getting up excited every day is um, the diversity of people, of opinions, of thought, of projects, and mm-hmm. the fast-paced environment. I get a little impatient if I feel that things are stalling or if we could move faster. Yes but we're not. Um, Crimson isn't um, at all conservative. Um, it's very bullish and very bold. And it's just the thinking mm-hmm. is just just try it, fail quickly. Um, better to make a mistake than, you know, paralysis by analysis. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a phenomenal environment and I've thrived in it. And, yeah, get to celebrate six years in a week or so. Before we continue with this podcast episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, the Crimson Youth Fund. Now, the Crimson Youth Fund is for individuals that have started a project while in high school that can benefit fellow students and make a lasting impact on your on their community. Or it's for individuals that have a great idea but does not have the essential resources like a branding kit or an event plan or media interest to make it happen. The Crimson Youth Fund is a philanthropic arm of the Crimson Education, created to provide students or recent graduates aged 13 to 21 years old with essential resources like bringing the event to or project to life. For more information on the Crimson Youth Fund, please check out the link in the show notes and maybe they could just be supporting you on your next project. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, I'll wish you in advance. Congratulations to six years. Um, (laughs) Thank you. But I think think your... hearing your your view about like my position and so forth i think like napoleon hill's quote um that resonates with me quite um quite personally and so forth but the man who does or the woman that does more than he than she or he <laughs> is paid for it will soon be paid for more than he or she does absolutely and, and that quote does that, that quote it, it's like he already knew from napoleon hill is like now back i don't know how many years but yeah long way back uh but he he already understood that finding your passion already in your job is more important than you thinking of the monetary value that 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 position has and so forth and i think i also um, that resonates with me and I, i've recently learned in a level english about the theories of language and so forth but you going to the US and opening uh, and being there, like the Australian <laughs> accent, there, there's actually something called cu- cultural transmission theory <laughs> and substration theory. So the, the, I, th- I think I like I'm, I'm applying some knowledge here, but it, it's it's amazing to see some like real life um, application right. of like English. <laughs> exactly. 
English change and so forth. But I, I totally understand your point of view when you say that language in the US is a little bit like the language change is a little bit difficult. Like I remember when I was there, the first time I was there, so by myself, I remember <laughs> calling a margarita pizza, asking for margarita pizza. And the person was like, it's not a margarita. And they had this like husky voice. I'm like, it's not margarita pizza. It's a cheese pizza. Say it properly. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'm sorry. It's a cheese pizza. And the second time I visited the US, um, I was like, mom, dad, it is a cheese pizza. Don't say margarita. Don't say margarita. And I, like literally, it, it was something that just st- sticks with me till now because I remember getting sheltered quite rash, uh, harshly there. I was like, Wow. Damn, these very picky about their pizza names. Mm, and I was mm. like, okay, right. whatever it is, it's yeah, good for to me, learn. Um, <laughs> right. I always feel that, um, yeah, it, it is good to learn. And I think if if you are the person going into um, the the environment, the different environment, I, I always try to show respect by adopting the ways or the language or euphemisms and so on and and I have fun with that too so um yeah I I think I've I learned pretty quickly to just either changing my my tone or my accent a little bit or um slowing down the pace that I talk at for example in um when I was presenting in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia uh, I was at a round table with a representative from Vietnam India Singapore um Japan, there were executives from Japan at the time and so on. Um, this was um, when working for Kumon as the representative of ANZ, Australia, New Zealand. And I realized that culturally, what would be really respectful and appropriate is if I slowed down, I talked slowly. I also gave a copy of my slide deck, my presentation in advance. And I didn't put anyone on the spot because that can cause great shame and embarrassment. I also didn't. Um, I also didn't challenge directly decisions of authority either. Um, that I, I showed respect for um, and an open mind for, and found another way to push back um, on certain decisions that were made um, from from authority. Because um, I know culturally, um, people in some countries you know, do need to feel prepared, do want the chance to have a script and slides ready. Um, whereas in, in other countries, um, the philosophy or the teaching within school is everybody can participate and we encourage you to challenge back, actually, mm. and it's on you to prove why you're right. Everyone else, feel free to prove why this, why this person is wrong. Um, mm. It's very different country by country. So, yeah, I've definitely learnt some different skills to make everyone comfortable with the end goal, the ultimate goal for me is having diversity of contribution and thought. So you can really hear from everyone's perspective and people don't feel intimidated or not welcome to share their um, take. Uh, it's it's so great to hear that that from your experience and you've worked in the US and so forth, you've worked, you've had like a diverse working experience through the world and you understand cultures and so forth. Um, mm. And this is like just a little bit of like, I don't know if you've experienced imposter syndrome, like when you started this whole traveling type of thing, because like working in your your country um, and, or Australia, um, it's, mm. you know, the people, the people speak the same as right. you. Um, 
it's just like so easy to like go on. It's like the lingo is there, but mm-hmm. when you go overseas or you work in, let's just say Singapore, for example, like um, when I was there, it there is like a little bit of a, like an accent change, uh, change there, um, which is, should I say that you don't want to offend somebody like or be disrespectful, mm-hmm. so you always try to like, okay, am I saying this right? That I'm right. not saying it incorrectly. That they misunderstand and, yeah. me, right? Yeah, I think it's great to be vulnerable and honest. So um, yeah. in, in the past, I've said to someone, um, I'm going to do my best here to pronounce your name. Um, it might sound different given I'm coming from an Australian accent here. Um, is this correct? Yes. Can you, you know, would you feel welcome to correct me? Have I got this right? And just showing that you're attempting to um, pronounce properly, I think showing that effort and care and consideration mm. is far more appreciated than any offence caused from perhaps saying it a little wrong. I think the effort goes a long way. And um, one tip I have in, with dealing with imposter syndrome for me, it's I often, yeah, I, I think of it quite playfully in the workplace. I find what we do almost um, in some ways is role playing. It's not truly who mm. you are. People see a very narrow glimpse and you play a role it's often in my case I would walk in with a suit you know I don't walk around the house normally in a like high-powered suit and heels and yeah. <laughs> um and so on and you know I don't I don't carry a briefcase around when I'm talking to my family members and so on at the dinner table um so I'd, I'd almost laugh at myself going into it, not taking myself too seriously and thinking, I'm just going to have fun with this. If people respect it and, and, and truly feel that I have a good contribution to make here, great. And um, I'll, I'll keep contributing and offering my opinion and advice. If I'm not taken seriously or if I'm seen as less than, then my work is done here. What, what else can I do? I tried, you know, but it's not going to actually affect my confidence because they only see a very small glimpse of who I am, very surface level, yes. but also knowing that people take their own biases, their own life experiences and project that onto how mm. they interpret you. And you can't affect that. Yeah. So I always say to people who are worrying about, is someone going to read me this way or am I going to come off as this? I just say to them, you can only control your response, how you respond to things and how you perceive things. You can never truly influence how someone responds to you. So just think about, manage your response, be positive, you know, be kind to yourself, have fun with it and understand at the end of the day, I think in society, we're all just role playing here and making it up as we go along. (laughs) Yes. I like that. I like that analogy, uh, especially like when you've related back to like when you were in your childhood and so forth. Um, that people pleasing was something that used right. to be. Uh, I think everybody, everybody at one stage, they like want to mm. people please, and mm-hmm. imposter. And this hearing your advice about imposter syndrome, it's fine to make make mistakes. That's what I'm learning right now. It's fine to make mistakes. Yes, it's fine not to be a people pleaser. I actually had a tweet about that. I was like, <laughs> if I wanted to sell some, if I wanted to be everybody's favorite person or I'm paraphrasing it yeah now even getting it mm-hmm. wrong although mm. please everybody I would sell ice cream and then um, <laughs> I, I, with a comment 
um, from my English teacher. She, um, she says even people even people that don't like ice cream like they don't like the ice cream men. That's so right. Like, There's some Ooh. people that will still be offended by being sold ice cream. <laughs> so yeah, um, and, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's like such a such, such a fundamental thing that we have to instill in our mindsets that. You're yeah. not going to please everybody. Um, no. Not everybody's going to like you. Uh, they're not yeah. going to like you because you may have done something better than them. And right. it's fine. Uh, you being better than somebody and you not even being aware about it. Hey, it's right. like a point up. Like it's exactly it's, um, for you, I it's wonder, you growing. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's Growth makes you uncomfortable. Growth makes people around you uncomfortable. You enter into an, you know, um, an unfamiliar territory and it, it makes people um, change and change is never easy. And it's, you know, mm. as you know, the only constant, I, I believe the only constant in life is change. And I think that's mm. why I'm quite comfortable and at ease with myself changing, my lifestyle changing, my role at Crimson changing. And I love change. For me, change, it's going on another adventure. It's like a choose your own adventure book where you can just keep rewriting the next chapter and the next chapter. I find that very exciting. If someone said to me, I can guarantee you now, this is going to be your job for the next six years. Uh, You're going to live here for the next 10 years. Um, I don't think I'd be too pleased with that at all. That would, um, (laughs) that wouldn't be too fun for me. Uh, I do like some, yeah, I do like the unknowns. Um, definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and, um, and that just speaks about like okay, you spoke about change and so forth and growth, um, uh, positive growth. Like your journey that you and your experiences that you've gone through is all positive. Like the looks of it, and mm. uh, by by bystanders' view, it looks amazing, and mm. you've grown into grown with all the experiences and I, I just like to take this uh, this opportunity like ask you like is many people like think that university is your um be it ended or like uh you often get these people in the world like oh if you don't have a degree and I've, i'm me mm. i've been talking to a few people on the podcast like they they like tell me straight that if you don't they're not going to go to your university and mm. it's they they've actually like opened my mind. I personally want to go to university, so it's mm-hmm. by it's my my objective. I actually enjoy studying for some odd reason, and I think I thank my parents for that. Uh, they've been mm-hmm. the influence on me like that. Uh, but yeah. those people who uh, and maybe you can elaborate. But from your experience through traveling and speaking to a diverse range of people. Um, is the is it necessary for you to go to university to be somebody, uh, should I say, qualified in your field, like to be mm. known as qualified or an expert in your field? Is there? Right. Mm. Yeah. That's a yeah. You can approach that in a in a range of ways. I think it does come back to what are your ambitions and your goals ultimately. And in in some cases, a university degree is required if you want to be recognized as say a surgeon mm. or an anesthetist or yeah. if you want to um move into consulting and so on not only is university actually a prerequisite and a requirement but even you know i'm at crimson education we exist because we understand that 
in many ways, a university degree and a top-ranked university does open doors and sets you on a path um, to access very competitive industries and, and, and jobs and so on. But it also, it's not just about that. It's not about the CV in itself. I think um, for a lot of people, a university provides maybe the community that they didn't have during high school or earlier years. Yes. They, they find their tribe, their people and there's so many extracurricular groups and clubs and um, so many cultural factors to weigh up when you're choosing your university as well. But it always comes back to, yeah, the students' personality, their goals, their ambitions. Um, it depends. There might be a career path for you where you actually don't need that qualification. It helps um, or it might add credibility when you are introducing yourself um, to certain other professionals or whatever. But um, it depends on, yeah, what you value and what's important to you at the end of the day. Um, my parents, I'm, the, I'm a first-generation university student. They actually mm. didn't have the chance to go to university and have still um, done very well for themselves in other ways. So it just depends mm. on your values and, um, yeah, where, where, you want, where you see yourself really, adding value and contributing and um, being part of, yeah, different aspects of community i I like that again i like that point of view um as working at crimson and so forth you've understood the university industry you've understood the education industry and you've always been into education from your experiences and I, i think that stems down and you can probably correct me, but it stems down to that point where you were assigned to helping those students. It started there. It's like, it's just like a glimpse. Like you didn't even know. And it's so funny to think that life plays out and like you're getting these discrete views and you don't even realize that you're getting these discrete views. Um, But I I think like from your, your perspective in, in the education industry, what is your view around university? My my personal view around university, it's necessary. I've always mm-hmm. thought of university as like, oh, okay, it's a really cool thing. Education mm-hmm. is the power. Um, mm. And I've heard people that say otherwise. Uh, what is your mm-hmm. view? Right. I think uh, we have heard from some global you know, celebrities and that have glamorized dropping out of college, you know, I dropped out and I've still founded this multi-billion dollar company. Look at look yeah. at me. Um, but in most cases and how the, how the world is structured and um, the selection process, um, university plays a really great part of signaling actually in that. Um, Jamie, he's going to be releasing his first ever book called Accepted. And um, mm. in this Accepted book, there's a whole chapter on signaling and signaling starts pretty early on. And actually, that's the reality, I think, of the society we live in today. Um, the university you go to, the kind of grades you maintain, the clubs that you're a part of and the roles you play within university, that, that role-playing part play, gives a signal. Um, that allows then the um, graduate programs or, you know, your first year out, the companies that are looking for talent um, they can easily follow the signals that their current cohort of employees have. For example, at a consulting firm like McKinsey, which is world famous, um, McKinsey may look at their top performers within their firm and see the common denominators there. Um, We have 
um, employees, our top performers typically, you know, came from an Ivy League. Mm. They maintain this certain GPA average grade and mm. they played this role at the um, student newspaper and so on. We don't have time to screen the, the hundreds of thousands of applicants we get every year. So they may then simply choose to follow the same signals. Let's go to these particular universities. We'll choose people that have this um, general um, grade average and that have taken on these kinds of roles because we know this is the kind of candidate that thrives in our in our company. So, yeah, that, mm. that signaling tends to happen and um, that's something just to be aware of. So I do think university is important um, to be recognised by certain industries, professions, um, depending on where you want to go. And I also think um, studying abroad um, is an incredible life experience that I never had the chance to do. But for my own daughter, I would definitely think about encouraging her to have the opportunity to study abroad. Um, I think um, being a global citizen is going to be a skill that our future generations really need. I think the world mm. is getting smaller and more interconnected than ever. So studying in mm. another environment, another cultural hub, being exposed to an international student body, um, I think that will be a very exciting place to thrive in. So that's um, that's mm. my view of the world. and that also just gave me a lot of confidence knowing that I had a degree and I was in some ways certified to give this advice and to be an expert yeah. in this field that I thought I was an expert in. Yeah, I think that the idea that the ideology of university and when you finally get that piece of uh, piece of yes, cardboard or paper, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, it's, it holds significant value, yeah, and I I agree. Like having all those frames on your wall, like okay, University of Cambridge or University of Oxford, or whatever it is uh, on your wall, it's like, well, I did it. Um, it's yeah. like an achievement, and I think it all bases on people's viewpoint. Like you said, um, mm. every person is different. Uh, not every person is cut out for. Uh, academia not every person mm -hmm. wants to go to university maybe they found their pa their purpose in life it's not to go to university it's maybe to develop some apps absolutely. Or, yeah like absolutely um, to build a legacy and to develop and um you know there's so much value you can add um, without going to university um but yeah that that seems to be the path that i followed and i see so much value from what the students at crimson experience when they do and mm. um, gain admission to that university like their world just opens up and the, the opportunities just explode when they're on a campus that's the right fit for them that's another thing yeah. I would never prescribe um I would never say you know for you to um get the most out of university it has to be these universities or these are the yes. best universities I think it really yeah. matters um what is the student's personality what environment would they thrive in what's the culture of the campus of this university what are the professors like and what do they specialize in? What inter, you know, intellectual discussions happen on campus? What clubs are around there? What have the alumni gone on to achieve? And uh, what's the legacy? Mm. There's so many factors to consider and weigh up. It's so exciting um, when you do have the option um, to consider your, you know, your target list of universities that would be a good fit for you. And you know, some universities may be considered obscure but they are top in the world at architecture or top in the world for journalism 
So thinking, mm. you know, outside the box as well when you think about university is a great learning experience, even if you don't in the end end up um, going for it and, and um, yeah. you know, applying or getting accepted. Yes. Uh, no, to wrap it up now, I, I think like uh, after the this has been going on for like uh, <laughs> hour and a half now, I think. So I, I really enjoyed it. We can speak for hours, but I think right now, I just one thing I would like to know is that mm-hmm. uh, as as Crimson Youth Fund Director and how, how mm-hmm. was the idea yours? Did you build it up and so forth? How did it actually come around? How did you pitch this idea? Right. Yes. This was in conversation with Jamie, uh, taking me back quite some time now, um, at least three years ago, three or four years ago. I'm trying to think of um, what happened was from memory. Um, I mean, Jamie still um, provides strategy and mentorship to students. So he's exposed to students' extracurricular projects all the time and initiatives. Myself, I was exposed in my role of interviewing students and telling their story, securing really great media coverage of their results, uh, what their goals and dreams were. I, I came across the fact that there were um, so many activities and projects that they had ideas for, but they just didn't have either the confidence to go for it, um, the symbolic backing, or even the just practically speaking, the funds. Uh, to, to get it mm. off the ground. So um, I remember at the time thinking developing a philanthropic arm for Crimson would be a great contribution back as we were able to um, continue to grow. Um, we were very fortunate to raise quite a lot of funding over time. So we thought, why not channel that back and reinvest back into our students? Um, and also any student, really. You don't have to be a Crimson student. It's for any student out there, um, 13 to 21, to apply to the Crimson Youth Fund. So we said, let's dedicate $50,000 uh, to this fund. And over time, let's back uh, as many high potential students as we can. Um, mm. And that's through initiatives that other students will be exposed to, just to broaden their own thinking, their development, their contribution back to the community. So I would say it was very much a just a conversation that started. Um, I, don't, I don't think I had to try too hard to convince or to pitch or to secure approval in the end. Um, once mm-hmm. we reviewed a couple of applicants, it was pretty clear how amazing this generation of students is. I'm blown away just seeing this podcast um, come to fruition from when it was mentioned as an idea in a spreadsheet um, that I read yeah. from our applications to this. It's just phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, we're just we're just constantly blown away by seeing um, how through all these Crimson Youth Fund initiatives, um, people are becoming more connected. Um, that's a theme that we're seeing more than ever. Uh, a lot of um, socially-minded initiatives, a lot of initiatives that are focused on personal growth, mental health and togetherness during such a challenging time of the pandemic. Um, that's been so rewarding to see. I could never have imagined that when we first started. Yeah. Mm. No, that's that's really, really great. And just one final question, and this like this amazes my curiosity probably. Uh, but <laughs> how does how does the I know that you've you've uh, I think you host the Crimson Fireside Chats. Yes. Uh, 
um how does that tie in with the crimson youth fund is it how how does that work um right right it's actually considered quite separate um that's another that's another initiative yeah that um that i lead this one is more so from my role within people and performance the people and performance team at crimson what we recognized was um in the thick of the pandemic, our team members really wanted to get a sense of, again, social connectivity, while also um, giving them an opportunity to keep developing their skills, their mindset. And one thing at Crimson we saw is because we were moving a million miles an hour, because we we are um, constantly driving forward, there wasn't often permission to pause and to reflect. Uh, and to also mm. hear from others that have done it before, either as entrepreneurs um, or MBA graduates or um, female executives, women on the executive team, etc. So we wanted to get these mm. voices across for our for our team to hear from, to give them ideas of where they can further develop and grow, what we can do better at Crimson, where they might want to take their their career to the next level. Um, but also to just discuss um, basic, you know, um, everyday matters. Um, so I, I launched the Fireside Chats and I started interviewing top global business thinkers in high-performance environments. So people that had gone on and won an Olympic gold medal, people that had graduated from Harvard Business School and are at other global companies or um, worked within Silicon Valley um, in massive, you know, venture capital firms and so on, um, Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, all kinds of perspectives, and we, we would bring them um, onto a um, into a fireside chat, a live virtual webinar, and in some cases we'd have eighty people joining live from around the world. In other cases, it would be a more intimate session, um, but w- yeah, I would host them, or my my really great colleagues would put their hand up to host as well. So we've had brilliant hosts from the UAE region, from New Zealand, from the US and so on. And, Mm. um, yeah, a lot of questions come up around imposter syndrome or around um, networking, mentorship, all those questions you asked today, um, very common themes or around career progression and promotions, um, you know, how how to be entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial within your own company. Um, yes. you know, how to take a customer empathy approach to developing tech and products. So many different questions, uh, but we find it really rewarding. And it's, it's a solid hour that's, that we give back to our team to take um, okay. as much away from it as they can. Okay, that, that sounds really great. Uh, yeah, speaking to all these influential people, like um, I'm speaking to a few right now, yourself included, Jessica. <laughs> uh, it's, it's been great chatting to you today. Um, now to the our traditional end of or conclusion of yes. the expandable mind is the rapid fire questions. So great. you can answer them in points, <laughs> sentences. And the, yeah, I'm going to fire away. Let's let's do this. Let's uh, tell us, tell me about the three most influential people in your life and how they've impacted you. Oh, that's so hard. I would have to say um, my sister, my big sister, uh, my husband, and my baby, <laughs> my little girl. How have they impacted and influenced me? Um, my big sister, she's, you know how we spoke earlier about actions over words? Um, just her actions. Yeah. Always being 
um, very kind and generous and um, mm. to, to those around her and myself. And I think I saw how diligent she was, how studious, very academic. That really influenced me to take a similar mm. approach to my work, my work ethic, my studies, and, and just um, her loyalty to her friends and family. I respect so much and I've always tried to emulate that myself. So that's, that's one. And mm. um, my husband, um, he's influenced me in so many ways. I, I think one main way has been <laughs> um, just maintaining a really positive outlook on life. He is the most positive person I've ever met. Very practical and just, yeah. you know, uh, you know, we've suffered from a lot of loss in recent years, family, friends, and so on. And he's just gets back up with, um, so much determination. So I really value that. And at times when I've um, confided in him saying, I don't know if I can keep doing this role or this is, this is getting really hard or I'm exhausted. Um, he just always reminds me mm. to um, think long-term and to think sustainably and keep um, putting energy back into myself for the long-term. He always wants to, you know, reminds me mm. that life's a marathon, not a sprint when I get a bit ahead of myself yeah. sometimes. So that's great. And then my daughter, Abigail, my little girl, uh, she influences me so much because you just want to be a, a good person for them. You want to be a good example. And, you know, I, I really enjoy telling her that mummy, mummy's going to work today in the city or mummy's, um, you yeah. know, mummy's calling auntie so-and-so. One of my best friends from childhood is now, you know, her auntie and, I, I, I want to show her the value of hard work, um, of maintaining friendships and um, solid relationships. And I think the um, the importance of play as well. So she reminds me to just play for the sake of play and enjoy, you know, just yeah. being silly and having fun, not taking life too seriously. So that's what I um, love about her. Um, so they're the three. If I yeah. had to narrow it down to three, there's so many more people though. I can't name. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, next one, next question would be: If you could go back and give your 18 year old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Okay, my 18 year old self, just starting university, uh, I would tell myself to. I, I would say, have conversations. Have more conversations with people in your community that's the advice I'd give to myself I think that I limited myself mm. to thinking networking was something that happened in my second year of uni or maybe the final year when you prepare yourself for the official workforce apart from the casual job I had during uni like many of us have yeah. I, I reserved networking for that if I could go back now and say yes. well, as we spoke about today and um, have conversations and um, be interested in, you know, show that you're interested in other people and um, just, yeah, I think embrace embrace the unknown a little more, get comfortable with the unknown. That would be my advice to my younger mm. self. Yeah, I like that. Uh, if you could have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, I don't know which one is your preference. Uh, <laughs> tea. With an historical tea. Mm. Um, historical figure, who would you choose? Oh, gosh, I'd have to say... Can historical also be someone still living but influential in, yep. in history? I would say David Attenborough is one. 
Yeah, David okay. Attenborough would be a big one for me. I, um, even though he is still with us, um, I think just the the changing world that he's experienced socially, environmentally, culturally, that would be mm. a phenomenal um, conversation to have, and it would definitely be a cup of tea. I think he'd probably have a cup of tea over a coffee, <laughs> and um, coffee just makes me too wired. I, I honestly physically get the shakes and I'm high strung and I just know that my body doesn't receive coffee all that well I've learned to just not try to do the coffee thing even though that's what a lot of adults do I'm okay with admitting that tea is (laughs) tea is the thing that I enjoy more um so that would be a cup of tea with him yes yeah I like that um what what do you think uh, is the most important lesson uh, you've learned over your your career? Um, that's a great one. Important lessons. One would be l- active listening. So don't mm. don't fixate too much yeah. on having the right answer, and and being the first to have the right answer. Just listen intently and carefully, mm. and I think you'll learn more truths uh, along the way. And also see opportunities that others may not see as well. Um, It also helps you to read the room and to get a sense of how to um, get the most out of people and collaborate really well if you're listening and also listening to the body language or watching the body language, not just what people are saying, but really listen or observe what the actions are as well. Uh, That's that's Mm. one lesson that I have. Another lesson would be to, um, to, to I guess, be okay with having an empathetic approach to leadership. So um, being a, a woman in leadership, people might perceive my empathetic approach as being, you know, um, what some might say is soft or, you know, a little too easy on some people. But um, I think actually what I what I'm proud of is balancing empathy with still high standards and empathy mm. with um, high expectations of people but you can have those high standards and high expectations I think when you're in the trenches with the team and when you're leading um, from the front with them so um, taking those two approaches I think um, creates a really productive um, energized, safe environment for the team where they feel that you see them you hear them you've got their back but you're also going to expect a lot from them and push them at to be a little bit uncomfortable um so yeah that's yeah. Uh, i think that's what i would pass on as well as another lesson that i've gained i like that um last question the final the finale whatever you want to call the last <laughs> um what's your favorite productivity hack Ooh, for me, it is always the night before the next day, reviewing the schedule that you've set for yourself and seeing the day as a schedule. Um, I, I physically, as a form of signaling, I physically allocate windows in my calendar for different projects and work or study. So I block it out. Rather than writing a list uh, where you don't really know what time can be allocated to that list. It's almost quite, I think, 
um, challenging to have a list and you think, great, I've got this list. How do I actually accomplish that? What, where's the time to accomplish that? And what I love doing is every day for weeks in advance, putting hours, half hours aside to do projects and work and always reviewing it the night before, knowing what I'm stepping into the next day. So I'm prepared. I've got the mindset ready to go when I wake up in the morning. Um, and then also varying. I'm more productive in, in some projects in 20-minute in blocks. I think our focus and attention yeah. works more so in 20-minute blocks. So rather than having every meeting a standard hour-long meeting, make it a 20-minute meeting. Yeah. And you'll get through as much content as you would otherwise in an hour. You'll just not waffle as much. Um, and then blocking out maybe more uh, longer blocks, like two hours, if you're in the flow and you know that that's a piece of work that you need to really dive into and, and lose yourself in a little bit more. So, um, yeah, yeah, just find out, find out what those flows are. And also productivity hack number three, <laughs> um, Figure out your your energy waves. Are you higher productivity in the morning? Do you find you have a second wind after 8 p.m.? Do you actually need to go to bed at 8 p.m. because you're better at 5 a.m.? So figure out where you work, where your brain is most sharp and um, give yourself those those challenging, um, you know, decision-making um, tasks or meaty projects when you have the most energy in your day. And everyone has a different flow. Hmm. Uh, I actually like uh, when you were speaking about like actually um, planning your reading over the plan for the day, the next day, it reminded me of a model that I read recently. Uh, it's called the pilot and plane where you, the, you, the pilot, when you're planning and it's separate people like productivity gurus and all of that agree that uh, separating Planning and doing will actually increase your productivity. I might be mm-hmm. paraphrasing again, but uh, that whole pilot and plane model is. Mm-hmm. I read in a newsletter, and it actually came. It actually relates so much to uh, to your how you plan your day. And I think I think I've been recently thinking um, before I actually sit down to do any work. I'm like, okay, let me plan. I'm going to be the pilot, <laughs> where I'm going to plan the whole thing. Um, and I'm going to instruct myself, okay, be very specific on what I want to do right. at what time, and like studying and so forth. Like that's the same example. I, I can do uh, quite long blocks of time, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, when is enough is enough. And we relate, we spoke about that mm-hmm. earlier, but um, I, I plan, i be the pilot for at least like maybe 10 minutes and I try to get down my key things that I want to get completed. Yes. And then I, I I jump into the plane and, and this is probably because I'm, I have been stuck in South Africa for a very long time. I have been, um, <laughs> we haven't been traveling quite a bit. So I think this model quite, um, uh, it, I, I really like it quite a bit because of the analogy and the relation, but I jump into the plane and because the pilots already had its instructions, he's preset the whole exactly. thing. I just jump into the plane. <laughs> yeah autopilot and i'm following the to-do list or whatever list it is and yeah yeah, i think that's brilliant and maybe more people can get it out there so yeah and that comes to the end of the podcast episode uh ladies and gentlemen thank you so much jessica and as usual um thank you for your insight um it's been really inspirational uh thoughtful uh insightful as i mentioned previously um 
But thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we hope to have you again on the podcast. Thank you, Vicky. Yeah. And it's been an absolute pleasure. I learned just as much um, from you. So thank you for spending time. And thank you for listening to those out there. Um, all the best. Wishing you the best of luck for the year ahead. Thank you so much, Jessica, for being on the Expand Mind podcast. To our listeners out there, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a five-star rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at expandable underscore mind. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.